Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, as we read verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, we freely admit our weakness and our great need to know and to enjoy the glory of Christ. Would you please grant us to see a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in much the same way that he granted his disciples to see his glory that night on the mountain. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw Jesus as he prepared the disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Uh, even into danger and even into difficulty. And so this week, right after Jesus tells them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We move right into the events of the transfiguration. Now, I don't have a lot of comments to say necessarily about whether or not this passage today is the fulfillment of that promise. But what I would suggest to you, at least is the beginnings of an answer, is that we see the beginnings of that answer here. So it is not as though that promise, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. The beginning of the answer starts here. They see Jesus's glory on the mountain, but that doesn't mean that the future events that that have taken place and are yet to take place are not also a part of that promise and its fulfillment. Uh, So that's the sort of thing that we can talk about after church if you're more interested. What I want to do is focus more on specifically what takes place here. And so six days after Jesus says these words, Jesus takes the inner circle of the disciples up on a high mountain 
And I want to just point out three things that happen here. Now, as I was working on this sermon, I have to confess I was overwhelmed because there's so much here. And whenever I get really excited about a passage, I want to point to everything that goes on. And when you do that, you endanger a sermon and you turn it into a sightseeing tour. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here. And so finding that singular thing that sort of binds it all together becomes more difficult. So pray for me that you all would hear that singular thread of Christ running through this because there is a lot here to be excited about. And so pray for me that I don't get too carried away. Today we have three things. We have one transfiguration, two conversations, and three comforts. So at least those are the three things I want us to orient ourselves around. One transfiguration, two conversations, three comforts. So first we see the the, that, that we're allowed to witness Jesus's transfiguration. And we see this in verses one and two. It says Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Before we talk about the transfiguration itself, notice something that is so, it's very kind. There's a great kindness here that we may not realize it's the fact that Jesus took anyone up there at all. The fact that anyone had a, the great privilege of being able to witness what we have in this passage today. Specifically, he invites them up. He invites Peter and James and John to go with him. He knows what is about to happen. He's, he's going to commune with God here on the mountain. And he brings these three brothers with him. And so in other words, Jesus makes a choice to include them in this glorious moment. Jesus is willingly and intentionally sharing his glory with these men. Now, I realize it's a little early in the sermon to do an application, but you know what? We can do whatever we want. We can have an application five minutes into the sermon. Think of this. Whenever you read scripture and you feel a sense of amazement at Jesus... Uh, anytime you hear the word of God preached and God gives you insight or he helps you to, to actually love what you hear, think of this. It's a great privilege. It's something that he is granting to you. It's a gift that he's giving to you. Just like he didn't have to bring Peter and James and John up the mountain with him here. He doesn't have to give us these things either. He doesn't have to give us glimpses of his glory. He could keep himself to himself if he so chose because he's free. And so... Uh, just glorify God. Glorify God when he gives you glimpses of his greatness. Praise him whenever you sense his glory. Um, I just, I need us to be reminded of that. That God is giving things to us from his great abundance. He's got so much good and he doesn't have to give it and he does. Um, but the disciples actually see something here, right? The, the goal here is not that they be invited on the mountain. It's what they're here to see. And what they see is a change in Jesus's appearance. Matthew uses a word here. The word that we hear in our English is transfigured, but the word in, in Greek is metamorphe. And if you, you know, one of the things I, I, know, I remember as a kid was learning all about um, caterpillars and this process of metamorphosis as they turn from a caterpillar into a butterfly. And I remember learning that word metamorphosis when I was in grade school. And I remember so little from biology. I, I'm not a good biology student. Uh, I'm not good on a lot of subjects. But I do remember this, this idea of metamorphosis. But the, the word in, in English that we use is not metamorphosis. We use the word transfigure. 
And I think that that is a better word in this case. And the reason is because we need to think of what happens here at the transfiguration as a visual change, a change in his appearance. Because his appearance changes here. His essence does not. Nothing of Jesus' essence undergoes a modification in this moment. He doesn't become someone else. He doesn't turn into something else here. He remains whom he was and always has been in the incarnation. He is the son of God incarnate in two natures. One of those natures being human. One of those natures being divine. Another, I'm really belaboring this because I want you to understand that at no point in the transfiguration does the, the human nature of Jesus become a divine nature. His divine nature doesn't become human. They aren't blending together. He isn't becoming a type of Superman where the, the natures are melding into one, um, not even temporarily, not even for a moment. Instead, it's best to think of this as a revealing rather than as a changing, right? This is what, what they are seeing is an apparent change. It's not the formation of something new. It's, it's almost, think of it like this. It's almost like the veil of his human nature for a moment is being drawn aside so, we, so the disciples can see this other reality that is at work. He is also divine. He is not only human. And they have seen Jesus ministering uh, in his human nature with his divine nature veiled through his whole earthly ministry. And here in this moment, it's like they're being shown what's really going on behind the scenes that they do not see and they don't understand. So, so don't think of this as God bringing back some sort of lost divine nature or giving him a divine nature that he didn't have before. He has always possessed his divine nature. Um, at no point... After the incarnation, did Jesus ever lose or set aside the divine nature? The only thing Jesus set aside, according to Philippians, is the rights and privileges that he had as God. He never set aside his divine nature. Um, From the moment of conception, he was always fully divine and fully man. When we think of Jesus... When we think of the person of Christ, when we think of the incarnation, we ought to think of his human nature being something that is added to him rather than changed from him. And so this means that while Jesus was always glorious, the glorious living God, his glory was veiled by his human nature. But here now at the Mount of Transfiguration, we see something special and something Very different from the rest of Jesus's earthly ministry, because in this moment, it's as though the veil of the human nature is drawn to the side, letting those present see the reality also of his divine nature. There are a few ways that those in church history have talked about this moment. Um, I like how Calvin describes the transfiguration. Here's Calvin's description. He says, Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for a short time. In the brightness of an unusual form, his Godhead became visible. His transfiguration did not altogether enable his disciples to see Christ as he now is in heaven, but gave them a taste of his boundless glory, such as they were able to comprehend. This was not a complete exhibition of the heavenly glory of Christ, but under symbols 
which were adapted to the capacity of the flesh. He enabled them to taste in part what they could, what could not be fully comprehended. Um, Anselm, writing in the 11th century, says that this transfiguration is a preview of his own glory and the glory of his own. Again, you see this idea of the veil being drawn aside. Now, now some, you might wonder to yourself, what's the, what's the point? Why, why did the transfiguration happen at all? Um, now, in, in some ways, that's impossible to answer because it's something God decided to do. And so you could just say the transfiguration happened because God decided to do it. And that's got to be a good enough answer. Um, but in other ways, you can see reasons why God does this. You can see benefits to the transfiguration. Um, for one thing, the transfiguration confirms Peter's confession from last week. So you remember, Peter gives the confession where he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I think it was actually two weeks ago. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? Peter just confessed it. And now Peter here is seeing his confession on glorious display. Um, you know, God speaks in verse five. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, right? Peter just said, Jesus is the son. And so even though last week Peter got corrected, it's also as though God is saying, yes, you got corrected. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean your confession was wrong, Peter. Um, it's also a confirmation of the, the glory of Christ, right? The disciples, at no point do the disciples see the full glory of Jesus here. Um, I think that's really important to state. It's not like they are, it's not like the dial is turned up to 10 and they're seeing everything. Um, John Owen has this passage in one of his books. He's got a book called The Glory of Christ. And, you know, if I'm, I'm recommending Puritan books here, I'm going to recommend The Glory of Christ. You can find uh, really readable English, updated English versions. Uh, I know for some that's like a heresy to read the newer versions of some of these old Puritans. But, but there are very readable editions of some of these Puritan books. And The Glory of Christ is one of those books that's been updated. And and if you look at that book, he has amazing things to say. But one of the things that, that Owen really belabors is the fact that all they got here was a taste of the glory of Jesus. Because if he had given them the full glory, they wouldn't have been prepared for it. Um, and the reason is, he says, these men are all sinners. Every man standing on this mountain looking at the glory of Jesus is a sinner. And I'm just going to read what Owen says here because this is significant, right? He says, all of us, does, you know, all, this is not a quote from Owen, but we all, on in some level, we want to see Jesus. We want to see God. We want to have some experience of him. We, we do yearn to have that moment that we know is coming one day where we will see him as he is. There's just something about it that we're excited about. Um, but John Owen talks about the fact that if we were to see Jesus today, we would not rejoice in what we saw. And there's a reason for this. He says, should the Lord Jesus appear now to any of us in his majesty and glory, it would not be to our edification. <laughs> we think it would be. He says, no, <laughs> for we are not fit nor able by the power of any light or grace that we have received or can receive to bear the immediate appearance of Jesus. His beloved apostle John had leaned on his bosom probably many times in his life in the intimate familiarity of love. But when he afterward appeared to him in glory, he's talking about Revelation 117, he fell at his feet as if dead. 
When he appeared to Paul, all the account he could give was that he saw a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun on which he and all that were with him fell to the ground. And this is one reason why the days of his ministry here on earth, his glory was veiled with the infirmities of the flesh and all sorts of suffering. The church in this life is not ready by the grace which it is made a partaker of to converse with him in the immediate manifestations of his glory. We are not ready to see Jesus face to face. That's what John Owen is saying. And Owen says this is, this is why the disciples only saw a part of the glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because they would have been destroyed as sinners if they saw his glory. See, they are not ready to see Jesus as he is. And you and I are not ready to see Jesus as he is either. We are sinners. We are waiting to be changed. We're waiting, waiting to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Until then, we live we live a holy veiled existence. We get glimpses of God's glory because if we saw his full glory, we would be destroyed. But what they did see, at least confirmed the truthfulness of Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, now, second, there's a sense in which the transfiguration, you know, I was mentioning the why would this have happened and giving you some reasons why the transfiguration takes place. There's a sense in which the transfiguration is a partial fulfillment of what Jesus said before. There are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier. This, there's a reason this is only a partial fulfillment because the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus and his second coming, all of those are completions of this. But Jesus is saying that at least you begin to see all of these things taking place in the life and the ministry of Jesus in his death and resurrection. The transfiguration is glorious, but it is not the complete picture of what Jesus is promising. Third, the transfiguration is a benefit to the disciples. Think of it. Think of it. This is for them to see. When you're thinking of, the, of who this is for, this is for the disciples, but it's also for Jesus. Because think of this. Jesus benefits from what he hears here as well. He hears the voice of the Father. He hears what God says about him. He hears about the pleasure the Father has in him. And I think we're so guilty of we're so guilty of thinking of Jesus in this rigid, stoic way. We think of him as the actor who walks from scene to scene, saying all of the lines perfectly and playing his part. Um, there's a great hunger on the part of Christians to get away from that rigid understanding of Jesus. We, we don't want to think of him that way. The way some Christians have done this is they, 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 they sort of turn to fictionalized TV shows and displays of Jesus uh, using human actors. And they say, now I can see the tenderness of Jesus. Now I can see the humor of Jesus. Now I can see that he laughed and that he smiled and that he held children and that he was friendly you see that in the scriptures. We don't need fictionalized TV shows to, to display those things for us. We don't need actors to show us the friendliness, the kindness, the gentleness of Jesus. He's here to see on full display. When we read the scripture, we see someone who struggled. We see someone who suffered. We see someone who hurt, who wept. We see someone who was filled with grief. Uh, in other words... If we imagine, if we read scripture and we think we need something else to see the humanity of Jesus, the challenge I would put before us is we should read the scripture again. 
because what we see all over scripture is someone who grows in wisdom. He grows in understanding. It tells us in the scripture that his wisdom wasn't complete, that he continued to learn. He continued to gain knowledge, that he read the scriptures profitably. And you can imagine even on the mountain that he needed to hear these words, that he was empowered in his ministry as he approached the cross. Could you imagine the strength that he gained as he's getting ready to approach the cross? He's already told the disciples it's coming. The death and resurrection of Jesus is coming. His suffering is coming. And how precious it would be to hear the father say to him how pleased he is with him. Jesus is being fortified for what's ahead also, not just the disciples. Jesus himself. So this is the first thing I want us to see here is the transfiguration. I feel so inadequate because this is such a glorious moment and we keep going. (laughs) But there's more happening here than just the transfiguration. Second this morning, we also see two conversations. They take take place immediately after the transfiguration. Um, The first is a conversation Jesus has with Moses and Elijah. Uh, We see this conversation happen in verse 3. Matthew describes it very simply. Before we talk about the conversation, though, we need to make a big deal about the fact that Moses and Elijah are there. And Jesus is speaking to them. Uh, Part of what makes their appearance so significant, you know, to us it almost is like a, whoa, look at these superstars who are on the mountain with Jesus. And surely that thought flashes through the minds of of Peter and James and John. But the appearance there also says something for us. Because here's the reality. Moses is known as the human author of the law. Oftentimes in scripture, uh, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are called the law of Moses. That's the term that's used because Moses is the human author. Elijah on the other hand, is remembered as the, the quintessential prophet. He's remembered the, as the prophet of prophets. And so when they both appear here on the mountain, something is being conveyed. What's being conveyed at the very least is that Jesus serves in continuity with all the ministry that God has brought before. He serves in continuity with the law of Moses. He, he serves in continuity with the ministry of the prophets. The law and the prophets all testify to him and here they are physically and literally standing here on the mountain with him. Jesus is the fulfillment of these men's ministries. So not only is God doing something for them, letting them see the very one that they prophesied, the very one that they spent their ministries promising would come, and now here they are face to face with him. But there's also something here for us, which is we recognize that Jesus is serving as a whole part of what came before It's not as though there was something separate in the Old Testament. God was doing this over here. And now here in the New Testament, God is doing something totally different. Instead, Jesus does a ministry of fulfillment. Now, there's something else going on in the conversation. We don't, Matthew doesn't tell us what the conversation is at all. Matthew just tells us that they're there. But if you read the other Gospels, what you see is that he actually, the, the, the Jesus is actually talking to them about something. Um, and by the way, they're not interested in the disciples at all. They're, it's almost like they're there, they're fixated on Jesus. The, the, the prophets, Moses and, and Elijah, are fixated on Jesus. And the disciples are sort of standing over here, observing all of this. They're not interested in the disciples. Um, 
John Chrysostom, he, he's writing in the fourth century, and he points something out about this. He says, this episode takes place immediately after Jesus tells them that being a disciple means taking up your cross and following him. And, and I hadn't thought of this until I was reading Chrysostom, but what Chrysostom says is, you know what Jesus is doing here? He's giving the disciples an example of two men who took up their cross and followed him. If you think of the ministry of Moses, if you think of the, the ministry of Elijah, they both led very difficult, painful ministries. They both suffered horribly in their ministries. They were spoken against. They were stigmatized. They were rejected by people. Uh, and yet they persevered. And, and, it's almost like, and it's almost like he wants them to see in these two men that, that, that an example of someone doing exactly that, right? And, and Chrysostom runs through and in his sermon, he, and I won't read all of what Chrysostom says, but he says, look at the ministry of Moses as he deals with Pharaoh or, or Elijah as he deals with Ahab as he speaks to this heartless, disobedient people. And he says they were brought to these extreme dangers and they were saved by God's grace. And both of them wanted to lead the people away from idolatry, and neither of them were eloquent men. And it's like Jesus is giving the disciples two living illustrations right before their very eyes of men who took up their cross and followed Jesus. Like, right, you want to know what it looks like to be a devoted follower of Christ. Look over here at Moses. In other words, you can even right now open your Bible. You could turn to the book of Exodus. And you can see a living illustration of someone taking up their cross and following Christ. You can look at the ministry of Elijah and you can see someone taking up his cross, suffering and following Christ. See, you don't just look to the New Testament to find examples of people suffering for Christ's sake. They're found throughout the scriptures. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us what they talk about, but Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it tells us this. It tells us that Moses and Elijah were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Like you just see this, these guys talking and you just want to be that fly on the wall. Except they're outdoors, so there's no, there are no walls. You want to be the fly on the tree, <laughs> listening in, what are they talking about? And Luke is generous with us and gives us something. And he says, they're talking about Jesus' departure. It is hard to imagine anything more precious than this conversation. It's very, it's very hard to imagine anything greater. Um, we can't say a lot about the conversation, but here's what we could say. Um, this is how Donald McLeod puts it. He says, he says, the fact that Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain and the thing they want to talk to Jesus about is the cross. And he, what he says is that the cross was the talk of heaven. And now here they are, and they want to talk to him about the cross. The disciples are interested in talking to Jesus about, about a, a glorious kingdom, a glorious earthly kingdom, and, and they want to talk to him about death, the very thing that the disciples are not interested in and that they're blind to in the ministry of Jesus. It's exactly what they zero in on in their conversation with Christ. Um, the, the prophets are forward-looking in their conversation, right? They are talking about what's coming. They're talking about his departure. Um, think, of, think of Peter again, right? Last week, we saw it. Peter resists what's coming. He, he feared what was coming. He hated what was coming. And he tried to steer Jesus away from it too. And then just 
contrast Peter with Moses and Elijah. Um, Peter doesn't have his eyes on the things of God. He has his eyes on the things of man. Moses and Elijah here, and what do they do? They are fortifying Jesus for what's coming. They're not trying to steer him away from it. They're trying to steer him into it, right? They're welcoming what's coming, and they are helping Jesus to welcome it as well. In a sense, aren't, aren't Moses and Elijah here as a counterpoint to Peter? It's like the voice of Peter spoke to Jesus, and again, it was really Satan speaking to Jesus, and here it is, God is like, driving the voice of Satan out. And he comes in with the law and the prophets to give Jesus what he needs in this moment. Peter speaks on behalf of Satan. The prophets are speaking for God. And what are they talking about? You are going to die. Get ready for it. The conversation is, it's about death. Um, You were afraid to talk about death with people. And yet, This is not a negative conversation. This is not a gloomy conversation. This is not a sorrowful conversation. And and part of the reason I I think that is because Luke doesn't talk about death or crucifixion. Instead, he uses this phrase departure. It's like a euphemism. He's using a, a pleasant word to describe the death of Jesus. It's like even the death of Jesus is beautiful in the light of his glory. Even the death of Jesus is beautiful. It's it's nothing more than a departure. In light of what's coming, all it is is a departure. The cross is necessary, but in light of what's coming, it's like an instrument of Jesus' exodus from this world. We must die some way. Christ is facing his, his exodus. He's facing the fact that he's going to go to the cross, and God is helping him. If we lived in light of the coming glory we will each enjoy. I think that we would find that our own suffering is changed and transfigured by God as well. I think we, we tend not to do that. We tend to get down in the dumps and it's easy to. We are flesh. We're, we're sinners. We, we, we get stuck on ourselves. We think a lot about ourselves. But imagine if we really lived in light of the coming glory like Jesus is doing here, we would think very differently and we would face our own suffering differently. <laughs> Now, there's another conversation Jesus has, and it's not with Moses and Elijah. Instead, it's with Peter in verse 4. Now, I admit it's a very one-sided conversation. It's actually more of an enthusiastic exclamation more than anything else, right? Um, Peter sees these men with Jesus, and he sees them talking, and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Um, He's speaking from the heart. (laughs) Lord, it it is good for us to be here. He says, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, it's very typical of preachers to pick on Peter hard here. Just, I thought about doing it myself. I sort of started to to write a nice little criticism of Peter and make fun of him again. Um, You know, Mark 9, 6, as this little detail, he says that he said this because he didn't know what to say. I just love that when Mark sticks that in there. Peter said this because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. It was like he thought, I've been silent for too long. I'm supposed to say something now. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, hey, let's set up, let's set up a headquarters up here on this mountain. And, you know, some people, they see Peter saying something stupid and putting his foot in his mouth again. I'm going to just encourage us to not be so hard on Peter. I'll give you a few reasons why we shouldn't be so hard on Peter. First of all. 
he may ultimately be wrong about what's going on, but his whole plan comes from a sense of respect, right? He, he calls Jesus Lord for starters. This is a respectful plan that, that Peter's suggesting. Um, second, he does offer up a tent for each of them, but he says he'll only do it if you want. He's, he's basically like coming to Jesus with an idea and what do you want me to do, right? He, he serves at Jesus's command. Um, he's, he's not just shooting from the hip and saying what he thinks should happen, right? There's a humility to this. There's a, there's a tentativeness to this plan. Um, third, the third reason why I think we shouldn't be so hard on Peter is that this episode resembles Moses' time on the mountain in Exodus, right? Because remember, Moses, he's on the mountain with God. He, his face shines brightly. He, he comes down with the law, um, you know, he's, his face is veiled. It's, the glory of God is showing. It is very reasonable for Peter to sort of see what's going on here, piece all of this together, and think that they may be on the mountain for quite a while. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. So, so it's, it's, it's possible that Peter, not stupidly, thinks to himself, we may be here for a while. Maybe God is reenacting what happened with Moses on the mountain. And so he ends up being wrong, but there really is only Jesus here, right? Moses and Elijah are nothing compared to Jesus. And in that sense, Peter still has a lot to learn, but I don't think we should be hard on Peter. Um, I, think, um, I think we should see instead that we have commonalities with Peter. And yes, Peter is mistaken, but he seems to be humble and he seems to be ready to be corrected here. And here's something we have in common with Peter. We almost never really know what God is up to. Like in the big picture, we know what he's up to. We know that he is, we know that all things work together for good. We know that God uses the events of our lives to shape us and to change us and to grow us. We know the big picture of what he's doing. But how many times in our lives have we said, I have no clue what God is doing. I have no clue why this is happening. I have no clue why this took place. And so we do the best we can. We make plans, but a godly person makes their plans tentative. You know, it's like James says, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. You know, you make tentative plans, humble plans. And so we should be ready and eager to serve. We should be guided by God's word. We should make sure that we don't get hung up on doing things our way. And Peter seems to be all of these things here. So instead of criticizing Peter, I would actually say, let's look at Peter as a model here. He makes plans and he throws them away as soon as he realizes they're, they're stupid and they're bad. Um, you know, just as fast as Peter speaks, he finds out that his plan doesn't work. He, he's wrong. They're not staying on the mountain. Moses and Elijah aren't here to stay. He just didn't understand. And so instead of picking on him, let's remember and take a cue from Peter that he thought he knew what God was up to. He ended up being wrong. And all the while, he is ready to do whatever it is that Jesus says. And we need to be more like this. We need to make plans and we need to pivot quickly. Uh, We need to remember that Jesus knows what he's up to even when we are just guessing. Um, And we need to hear that, especially if we're the planning type. I'm the planning type. I'm the kind of person that plans stuff really far out. I write my sermons farther ahead than you guys probably guess. Um, But you have to always be ready to say, I'm wrong. We got to do something different. Um, It's almost like we never hear a response to Peter's idea. That's the other thing that's interesting. We don't ever hear a speech, you know, Peter, 
why don't you just shut your mouth sometimes, right? There's nothing like that here. It's almost as if the disciples get ignored and forgotten by Moses and Elijah and by Jesus. The things happening here are so big that the presence of the disciples is like a distraction or an afterthought. Um, Third, I want to point out three comforts in this passage. Comfort is really needed here because Jesus feels the need to tell the disciples to have no fear. Like whenever you're reading reading a passage and Jesus says to somebody, do not fear. Sometimes we read a passage and we're so disconnected from it that we're like, why is he saying this? Is somebody afraid? Yes. If he has to say, do not fear, that means something happened that made someone fear. And what, what happens is they hear the voice of God and it drives them to the ground. They fall flat on their face. I don't know if any of you have ever been so frightened that you fell flat on the ground. Now, I've, I've scared my wife so bad that she threw her cell phone in the air. Um, uh, uh, I might have done it this week. I don't know. It might be confession time. Um, but we, you, have you ever been so frightened that you went flat to the ground? I mean, if you've ever been in the military, maybe. Um, if you've ever been in dangerous situations, maybe. I don't, I've never been so afraid that I fell flat on the ground before in my life. I've never been that terrified. And... The disciples are. They hear the voice of God and they go prone. Think of what Jesus does then in verse 7. In in verse 7 it says Jesus came and he touched them. And this is the first comfort that we see here today. It's the word of Jesus. The word of Jesus is the first comfort we see in this passage in verse 7. It says Jesus came and touched them saying rise and have no fear. He doesn't say rise and have less fear. He says rise and have no fear. No fear. There is no reason for you to be fearful. And here's, I just want to make an application here. The word of Jesus is the most profound answer to any fears that we might have. In in scripture, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples not to fear. And, And I promise you this, there is no situation where Jesus says do not fear when someone actually should be afraid. When Jesus says no, you should have no fear, it means you literally have zero reason to be afraid. And that's because Jesus' promises are good and they are trustworthy. There's nothing, there's nothing better that we can do or say than to remind one another of the words of Jesus. I'm not just saying the passages where he says, do not fear. But when Jesus speaks in scripture, that is something that is for our benefit. And when we're counseling other people or we're spending time with people who are in difficult situations or they are in a hard spot, it is very easy for us to resort to our own words and our own ideas instead of Jesus's words and Jesus's ideas. Um, It's like going to the hospital and they have everything to remove bullets and your friend has a bullet wound and you come to them and you say, I have all kinds of band-aids in my box here. Let's see how we might treat your very dangerous bullet wound. (laughs) And that's what we sometimes settle for. We settle for that. Um, Here's what I mean. You You have a Christian friend, someone who's fearful, someone who's worried. And what do you do? You say, I'm not going to just be the person who says, go be well and be fed. I'm going to give them practical answers. And so we say, well, look, I know a guy, right? I know a doctor. I know a mechanic. Uh, I know so-and-so. This person helped me. And we want to be very practical. And we should not be impractical. 
But sometimes we settle for that. We say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I see this person who's very upset, but I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them the surface answer, but I'm, I, I just, I forget to give them Jesus. I forget to orient their heart to what's really going on here. I forget to give them Jesus's goodness and wisdom or just remind them that God is there for them and that, yes, I'm going to help you with this. We just forget to say Christ is here. Christ loves you. Whatever happens, just know that he's in control. You know, those sorts of reminders that people need and we just neglect to, right? We oftentimes we're very content to give worldly answers, but we neglect to set the heart straight. And so instead of setting the person's eyes on Jesus, we give them practical solutions, which isn't wrong, but it is wrong if that's the, the, the grand total of what we do. The problem is if our solution fails, then they're no better off than they were before. Um, not, all, not every solution we come up with is actually the one they need. But if they hear Jesus speak into their situation, even if the situation becomes more complex, here's what happens. The promises of Christ remain true. The promises of Christ can carry them through the hardship they're going through. And so we need to do this for ourselves, right? We need to do do this ourselves. We need to look to Jesus for help when our trouble comes. And then as Paul says, we may be able to comfort with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So we are looking to Christ. And then when we see someone else who is in trouble, not not only do we help them, but we take, take them to Christ. We pray for them. We remind them of what's going on. We have more of an eternal perspective on that person's suffering than perhaps we are inclined to. Look what happens here. Jesus speaks and his word gives comfort to these men. He says, rise and have no fear. So we don't need to neglect good advice when it's needed, but we should not ignore providing for the deepest needs. Um, The second comfort that we see comes from the presence of Jesus, not just the word of Jesus, But it's the presence of Jesus. And you see it in verse 8. It says, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Right? I think this is so fascinating. It's a beautiful thing. I think a lot of us recognize this as we meditate on this passage. They seemed to be so thrilled to see Moses and Elijah. And yet the only one remaining is Jesus. And it is, is in this moment where only Jesus is present to tell them to have no fear. It's interesting. He tells them to have no fear after Moses and Elijah leave. It's like he wants, he wants the glory of their no fear to be his. I, he said, he's saying, I am the reason you should not fear. The presence of Moses and Elijah are not the reason that you should not fear. He doesn't let that confusion happen. He waits till they're gone. Then he tells them, have no fear. Over and over in the Old Testament, God is telling people not to be afraid. And he grounds it in himself. He, he says it so many times that if I actually quoted all the verses that I found, where God says, have no fear for I am with you. You would, you would start to yawn deeply and wonder why I was reading 30 verses to you. Take my word for it that there is a long list of passages in the Old Testament where God looks to the people and says, do not be afraid because I am with you. Do not be afraid because I am with you. Do that 30 more times and you start to get the idea. It would become repetitive to you. And do you know what though? Every single time he does it, it's precious. 
When we come to the New Testament, Jesus assumes the same thing is true about him. He assumes that his presence will itself be a comfort just as it was in the Old Testament. When he gives the great commission, what does he do? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? How does he comfort these men who are on the precipice of, of, of his, seeing his death and resurrection? Uh, actually, they've already seen his death and resurrection. Seeing his ascension into heaven and his departure from them. How does he comfort them? He says, I'm with you. He uses his comfort, his presence to be the comfort. Christian, Jesus is ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But by his Holy Spirit, he is present. He is with you. He is more present with you now than he was with his disciples on the mountain. He is not far away. He is not distant, regardless of how you might feel at times. He is not distant. Right? Your feelings about his presence do not determine whether he is present. Um, And there are times where you will not feel that he is present. But he promises you that he's not left you as orphans. And that he loves you and he's here with you. And so we are meant to be encouraged by his presence. The third comfort that we find in this event is the promise of God. And we see the promise of God in verse 10 to 13. It says, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on the the background of the question and the discussion because we already have talked about this in Matthew 11. Um, And I would encourage you, if maybe you came here since we have preached on Matthew 11, go back to the archive, give that one a listen because... I think there's a fruitful conversation there about John the Baptist as Elijah. But, but basically, the transfiguration episode ends on this moment of reflection from the disciples. And they're wondering, what's the implication of this? This moment, what might the implications be of this for the promise of Elijah? Because in Micah, it promised that Elijah was going to come. Jesus already said that John the Baptist is Elijah. Now here, literal Elijah is on the mountain. And the disciples want to know... Does this scramble up God's plan? Does, this, does Elijah come multiple times? And Jesus' answer is essentially that the coming of Elijah is something God promised. And it's a promise he already kept in the coming of John the Baptist. And so he's letting them know that the arrival of Elijah here on the mountain doesn't change any of that. Now, I know this is so simple. Right? Why would I even focus on this? But the simple answer is this passage ends on a note promising the trustworthiness of God and his promises. That's what Jesus is doing here. Um, that's, what he's, that's what Jesus is leaning on. He's saying the promises of God will come true. And that's what he's calling his disciples to lean on. He's, he's calling on them to believe this. He's calling on them to, pro, to trust this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are very few things better for your soul than saturating your own heart in the promises of God. Jesus trusted in the promises of God. He taught the disciples to trust in the promises of God. He taught them that God was faithful to keep his promises. And the truth is no different for you or me. Right? What a, what a glorious note for Jesus to end this passage on. 
You know, they have the experience of the transfiguration in front of them. And you and I, we would all think, well, that's the mountaintop experience. That's the thing that's greater than anything else. And Jesus ends the episode by reading scripture. He ends the episode by pointing them to the Bible. I think a lot of Christians think of the Bible as not the best way to know God. And that's why we partly yearn for a direct experience of some kind. And yet here the disciples have had a direct experience. And Jesus says, let's go to the scripture and see what they say. Like Jesus, Jesus is more excited about scripture than the experience they just had. And so here's my, my encouragement to you is cling to the promise of God and memorize scripture. Meditate upon scripture. Pray scripture so that not only, not only can you, do you have texts memorized for when the time comes where there's trouble and you don't have a Bible at hand to open up. But it becomes a part of the way you pray. It becomes a part of the way you speak. It becomes a, a part of the way that you speak to others and counsel others and encourage others. It goes into your heart. I know we live in an episode of Chat GPT era of Chat GPT where we can just type in, tell me this, and the robot will tell you. But we need these things to be on our hearts, not at our fingertips. These things need to actually be a part of us. So hold on to the truths of Scripture, especially in the moments when you are the most tempted to neglect them and the most tempted to let them go. Remember. Remember these things. You know... Peter did exactly that later on. He was writing to his fellow Christians. And Peter recalled the transfiguration in one of his letters. Years later, if you read 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter's argument there is that Jesus is coming back and his readers can be assured that he's coming back. And it's interesting the argument that Peter makes. Peter, Peter argues that Jesus is coming back because of what they saw. And here's what he says. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So here Peter is, Perhaps a, a decade later, perhaps more, maybe a decade. And he is remembering the moment when today's passage took place before his eyes. He witnessed it with his own eyes. And now, um, we know this too. We know that Peter died confessing this. We know that Peter died. His head, uh, not his head, Peter, Paul was, Paul's head was removed. Peter was crucified. And he was crucified by Caesar, and the whole time he was promising them, I really saw it, I really saw it, I will not deny it, I will die before I deny it. You know, there's an old saying, liars make terrible martyrs. Peter was a martyr. Peter died testifying that this thing he saw really took place because he was there. But think of what Peter is saying in this passage, in Second Peter, Peter has a lesson and an, uh, he has an application for us because he saw Jesus on the mountain. Peter says, because I saw Jesus transfigured, because I saw Jesus raised up. He says, my argument is you can be confident that it's all true. 
And you can be confident that that means he's coming back. So his application is remember the return of Christ. When you hear about when you hear about the transfiguration of Jesus, do not read it for its own sake. Instead, be reminded he really came. He's really returning. Now, there's one more thing. I know I've gone long. There's one more thing I want you to see, which is that this has implications for our future. Not just for the church's future, not just for um, the future in general, but it specifically has implications for our future. Because remember, on some level, the transfiguration was a preview, not only of what Jesus was, but of what he would become. But according to scripture, what he would become is what we all will become. Because um, Peter tells us we're partakers of the divine nature. He uses this phrase, and we can talk about what that means. But we're not used to thinking of other people as partakers of the divine nature. We're not used to thinking of the transfiguration as something that we will experience too. Um, I won't quote it, but at one point in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about what a serious thing it is to live among people who one day will become so glorious that we would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Um, Do you think that about others in this room? Do you think of of that about others um, that you know are believers? Do you ever stop to think that perhaps we neglect others or we disregard others because we forget just what a serious thing it is to be in the midst of a bunch of people like this? That one day we're going to be transformed to look like the transfigured Christ. The glory of Jesus is something he does share. Jesus does share his glory with us. Does he share it with us in the fullest sense? No, of course not. We would be destroyed. But here's the truth. If you have the Holy Spirit, this process has already begun in you. This is a process that God has begun in those who belong to Christ. And Paul tells us we are being changed into the same image. That's the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. We're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And John promises that one day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He's talking about the risen Jesus there. Can you see this promise that this is so precious? The transfiguration of Jesus is so powerful. It's so meaningful. It's something that was first seen on the mountain, but it's begun in us as well. And our God is so kind that he promises to carry that work on to completion. Let's pray together. You know, Lord, we do not wish to suffer, but we do wish that you would prepare us to suffer. And so would you make the transfiguration of your son an encouragement to us that one day you will give life to our mortal bodies through your spirit, granting us a body like the one Jesus had. Help us to see, O God, that the glory of your son is relevant to the glory we will one day enjoy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.